Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, what just happened? Bill Shorten has lost the unlosable election and Scott Morrison has pulled one out of the fire. This week on Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, we rake over the coals, scrape clean the hot plate and wipe down the stakeholders. Join me and an expert panel as we ask why the government's snags had so much more sizzle for voters. Well, hello there and welcome to Democracy Sausage, coming to you as always from our tiny studio in the Crawford School of Public Policy. And of course, this pod is a production of policyforum.net and the ANU. Joining me today, as she does each week, is Dr. Maria Tafliger, and she is uh, a political scientist from the School of Politics and International Relations. Great to have you here, Maria. Hello, everyone. And very happy to say also it's a welcome back to Sky News Australia's Chief Political Correspondent, Kieran Gilbert. Great to have you here, Kieran. Thank you, Mark. Maria, hi. Well, here we are. We're a couple of days after an election result that I think it's fair to say has surprised everyone who watched politics closely. In fact, it may well be said that uh, the closer you were to watching it, the more likely you were to have it wrong. So uh, let's let's go to that. Let's start off talking about the election and what went wrong in terms of, uh, particularly in terms of the analysis. Uh, and, and, I, and I should say here as a, uh, a commentator uh, of some years that uh, I certainly didn't pick this. The, the closest I got to it was to say that I thought this election would be close. But, um, I, I, you know, like everyone else, I was looking at the polls. I was looking, I was talking to people on both sides and it seemed to me that uh, Labor was moving toward a victory. So who'd like to start on explaining what went wrong for uh, the, I'll take you know, the, the polls. commentariat? So it seems like, and, I'm, and you know, I should make it clear at the start that I, I'm not a sophologist or a pollster, uh, but it seems like the, the problem with the polls is is in their methodology. So um, in the past, news poll used to be conducted uh by using the electoral roll, and then they would ring up landlines, mm-hmm. and by and, and then what they would do is when you'd answer the phone, they'd sort of say, "Oh, can we speak to the person who's having the next birthday?" So that's how they would randomise within the home, right, to make right. sure but, that. But they, they would... could certainly sort of geographically spread on that basis. They had a phone yeah. book to work off effectively. Precisely, and um, and they could also because it was a landline asking for the person whose birthday it was next, they're, they're much more likely to actually get a proper distribution, a natural distribution, if you will, the bell curve, mm. um, of of age as well. And so as uh, the popularity of landlines has gone down, um, using this method um, has proven harder and harder. And so what people used to do, and poll would be the classic example of this, uh, was uh, weight the data. So I don't have that many young people because young people don't have landlines. So what I'm going to do is that the young people I have in my sample, I'm just going to give that a little bit more weighting in the data, reduce the older folks in my sample down a bit, right? Mm. And that's how they used to manage that. But uh, because the rate of landline use has collapsed, 
context. Uh, the polling firms have gone to other kinds of methodologies. They're, they're um, trying to use a combination of mobiles and they don't always know where you live with a mobile. They're trying to go with online sampling and perhaps what they haven't been doing is potentially doing this early enough so they could test their new sampling methodologies against the old weighted telephone methodologies. And so what we would call this is a case of systematic bias in the in the sampling, in the data. And that's yeah. why it's probably out. Yeah. What do you think, Karen? Well, it was out. I know I know that for a <laughs> for fact. And uh, it was out for a long, long time. It, the, the reason uh, I think most of us, including you and me and the vast majority of commentators were of the view that Labor would win is because published polling said it, internal polling said they were in front. Both the major parties thought Labor was in front. So there was a, uh, I think basically it, it was a failure in obviously the polling, but also um, there was a one thing that they got right, I think, was this uncommitted un, um, vote. The mm. fact that people were undecided till late, they're ambivalent about the their uh, both parties. And all of those ended up backing, it seems, or the vast bulk of them backed the, the coalition. It's a failure from Labor because uh, I think they put all their eggs in this basket of of uh, the, their fairness agenda. They went really ambitious in terms of their reform. But the question is, you can win, I guess, with an unpopular leader and being a small target. Clearly, in Australia today, you can't win being a an unpopular leader with a, and also being a big target and one that they've picked so many fights across various cohorts it came back to to bite them in a big way. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I I was uh, I wrote about this uh, on the weekend actually that it was a kind of a compound negative really for Labor because uh, they had uh, an unpopular or at least a leader with low popularity and low trust. So there's a negative there selling a message that required a lot of faith, a lot of confidence from voters that it was a sound. Uh, reform package. You know that there was a big, ambitious reform uh, package there on the on in in the electoral marketplace, and it was being sold by someone who didn't have a lot of trust in the bank to do it. And that's actually a really risky thing to do. And uh, we now realise that uh, a lot of voters, perhaps, uh, what you're saying is right, Kieran. That um, you know what you were touching on there in terms of the undecideds. Uh, perhaps that's a, a good part of the answer here. That the polls weren't so vastly out. It's just that there were these undecideds, and they all flooded. Most of them flooded well, one way, right at the critical moment. With with the the view that it was just Queensland, I don't buy that either. Because if you, I mean, obviously Queensland was diabolical for Labor, but Tasmania wasn't much better. They lost two seats there. They didn't get the massive swing that they thought across the board in Victoria and New South Wales. Well, that again was. Um, they didn't pick up the seats they thought they would. WA, same story. So, so this was a nationwide response. Yeah, and the further you get away from the metropolitan areas of uh, the major cities, and particularly Sydney and Melbourne, the more likely you are, it seems, to have these kinds of um, results in this election. So as you say, those two northern seats in Tasmania, we know that they're, you know, they've been Labor strongholds. Uh, certainly, they they've got a lot of Labor voters in them, at least in the sort of habitual sense. Well, you know, they, well, the one of, of them is always switching, though. I think it's switched every time. Yeah, that's, yeah, eight, that's true. Yeah, that's because yeah, of the makeup. Years. That's true. That's because yeah. the makeup of that electorate and the boundaries and so forth. But it seems like sort of blue collar, working class, oh, you know, yeah. traditional Labor voters have walked away from Labor. And take um, uh, Joel Fitzgibbon's seat, uh, the Hunter uh, region. 
you know, vast uh, swing against him. I mean, he held on to the seat, but, uh, you know, a huge One Nation vote in that seat. Uh, we see those seats in uh, in northern Queensland. Well, he's called it out today, Joel Fitzgibbon. He said they need to win back the centre. They need to win back their blue-collar base, and he's going to back the leader um, who is committed to doing that, and he believes it's a pivotal time in the Labor Party's um, prospects right now that they decide the right course of action, the right leader. And he says if he doesn't hear it from one of the other candidates for the leadership, he'll put his hand up. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I think we'll come back to uh, what Labor should do inside, uh, you know, as a response to this in terms of its leadership and and policy a bit later. Um, but this issue of, uh, um, of, you know, how the government performed, um, how surprisingly its message cut through, uh, it, it's a really fascinating one about this election because I, I guess that's the, the the two stories of this election are the sort of single singularity of the, the the campaign that the coalition ran, which was all around Scott Morrison and Labor's policies, Scott Morrison's critique of Labor policies, um, and the collapse therefore in Labor's primary vote. So you know, going back to your point about Queensland, uh, Kieran, uh, yes, it's true that um, um, you know it's not just about the you know it's not just about Scott Morrison, but uh, clearly the the primary vote collapsed for Labor and uh, it did collapse particularly badly in Queensland. I, I think the presidential aspect of Scott Morrison's campaign is a really interesting uh, dimension to what happened. Um, and so in um, politi- in the political science literature, we like to talk about this as the presidentialization of politics. And basically what this means is that uh, as party organizations become more and more hollowed out, uh, less meaningfully a democratic link between citizens and representatives, uh, this actually empowers leaders to be more presidential, to basically have to listen to their party less. And the Liberal Party is already a really dominant leader party uh, style of, of, of party. And so I thought it was really interesting in Morrison's um, victory speech, and I think that's really the only way we can describe that um, uh, this result for them, given given what we thought was going to happen to that government prior to that for the polls and all of that. Um, that he, you know, that it was a really sort of simple and unadorned speech. He, you know, he said how great Queensland was and how great Australia was. He thanked his family, and he finally thanked the Liberal Party. And it and it wasn't necessarily the members, but it was, you know, all the state directors and Andrew Hurst who ran a fantastically disciplined and ruthless campaign um, who helped him deliver this result. But, he, you know, he's the, the person that we most remember from this campaign. Um, and it does really kind of call into question, or oh, that's actually the wrong phrase, like it does kind of sort of present an interesting set of questions like, you know, what is Scott Morrison now going to be like as mm. Prime Minister, given he has he has won this stunning victory, even though it's such a narrow victory, mm. which is exactly what Malcolm Turnbull failed to do. And that's why he didn't have authority in a party where he was already very uh, unpalatable to a, a certain faction within that party. So, I mean, yeah, what do you guys sort well, of Morrison, think? Morrison – was and is a much better political communicator than Turnbull. Um, I yeah. think that's it, that's so obvious from this campaign. He was he delivered, as Mark said, he focused a lot on on critiquing, critiquing Labor, and as you both point out, it was a presidential campaign. I think as well a potent part of his message, and it might have sounded hoaxy. It was a bit cheesy. Uh, you have a go, you get a go. That sort of message, but. It's potent because it targets 
the you know traditional Howard Battler, the mm. the uh, the aspirational voter that Labor did not have a message for. They did not have a message for them. Yeah, these are the, what they call in America the Reagan Democrats. Almost, yeah. you know well, those sort of people need, who who are working class but who are able to be dragged across to the conservative side because. They have aspirations. They have aspirations. And, and, and already Anthony Albanese has said, we need a message on how we grow the economy, not just share it. That was his opening pitch mm. for the leadership. And I think that this was, you know, in hindsight, it, it, it was a looming vulnerability for them. And, and Morrison filled that gap by saying, by targeting those voters, that, or has he, as he put it explicitly in his victory speech, the quiet Australians who are going about their work day by day, but essentially what they are is that aspirational class. And he's right across the country, I think that's a, a message that has resonated. He's a better communicator and he was disciplined in terms of keeping that message. It's interesting. I was uh, you know, listening uh, intently to uh, Arthur Sinodinus, uh, obviously a great Liberal Party strategist, uh, one of the really wise heads on the government side. He was fronting the uh, the ABC's election night broadcast uh, um, for for the government and he made a couple of interesting observations. One of them was about Scott Morrison and he said that the thing is from the moment Morrison took over, even before that, but from the moment Morrison took over the leadership, Sinodinus was noting that he believed, that is Morrison believed he could do it. So belief, and I'm not talking about his faith, which we can also talk about, but but just this in, in, inordinate sort of unshakable belief that Scott Morrison had that he could prosecute an argument and win that argument just, you know, with sheer sort of force of will. Uh, it does seem to have been the key dynamic in oh, this election campaign. It's a key characteristic of, um, you know, prime ministerial aspirants. And I, if you talk to anyone who's ever worked with Bill Shorten, you'll you'll get a sense that he had a similar belief, but perhaps not in this campaign or, uh, you know, or he just simply went quite Well, uh, that's awry. a really interesting point. Did, yeah. did, do you think Bill Shorten kind of went missing? Everyone talks about the fact that he – uh, you know, the, the assessment, and I certainly held this view at the time, the assessment in the first couple of weeks of the campaign, he really did seem quite cautious. He, he, he was he was in this odd position of being the opposition leader, defending himself rather than attacking, you know, to try and take government. There was a sort of a reversal of roles there. And, and so, yes, that belief question is interesting. I think he did have this long-term belief that he would one day be Prime Minister, and I think much like Malcolm the Turnbull. To, I think it, that belief actually, having watched him closely in this campaign, I think it went all the way up till till Saturday. I, I think he believed he was going to win. Yeah. Well, he, I think he, he believed he, he was going to win, but my point, today. my point isn't so – I guess that's right, but I, I, I guess I'm, what I'm getting at is that there was some there was some cautiousness there on the part of Labor in the campaign. Labor had a bold agenda and everyone talks about the, the sort of political courage of its agenda. Completely understandable, that that argument. But in terms of the campaign itself, once it was up and running, I thought there was a sort of a tremulousness in in the way it put forward its position. Well, absolutely. I think, he I was think, reticent think, to do debates. He didn't yeah. do the press club in the final week. He was he, he was cautious. And I think maybe it was playing safe because they thought they were going to win. But little did they know the polling, their polling, uh, internal and published, were, mm. were wrong. 
Uh, he misjudged the character, I think, of Australia, basically, with his message. Whereas, whereas Morrison came in like a middle-order batsman uh, mm. in, in a match where they were unlikely to overhaul the total and, and just started end. playing his shots. Yeah. I mean, there was a freedom in his, you know, as a batsman, you know, he freed his shoulders he and just – nothing to lose. Yes. He, he, it was yeah. in northern Tasmania the final day on Saturday. He was campaigning to the last minute. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really telling. In fact, if you look at what he did in those last uh, few hours, the hours that everyone thought had been obliterated by – the you know the grief and shock of the do- death of Bob mm. Hawke on that Thursday night in the last week, you know um, Morrison, a- as you say, he was in Northern Tasmania on polling day, you know, so uh, the, the, I think he was the first Prime Minister to be in Tasmania on election day since Joseph Lyons, who happened to be a Tasmanian. Tasmanian yeah. um, so that kind of should have told people that there had this something happening there. That late, they think these late two Labor seats in Northern Tasmania are gettable. He was also in Longman, I think, um, on the day before, on the Friday. Um, you know, so uh, and Longman, of course, is another uh, Liberal gain so, in this election. So, yeah, amazing self belief and amazing surgical focus. Almost like this guy handled this like a marketing exercise. He worked out where his markets were. He targeted his messages very, very carefully, and then he just hammered them. Well, he is an advertising man, and perhaps that shows. Um, but I guess it does raise the question, is this one of those rare times when the campaign really did matter? I think so. It looks that way. Um, I think although- it mattered because what it did was expose, uh, you know, provide Morrison a platform to sell himself. As you said, he's an advertising person. Also, you know, a major both of them political animals. And the thing is, there's something that hasn't been referred to much, but I, I think it's worth mentioning, is that Morrison, not just with his own political nous, but travelling with him throughout the whole campaign was Ben Morton, former WA Liberal Director and member for Tangy. He's known um, Scott Morrison since he was very young. Um, he's a, he, you know, he was a bus driver in Gosford, now he's a member of parliament. But what he is, is also someone with a great political antenna. And so the two of them together... He was his confidant. I think he's his closest confidant in parliament. And I wouldn't underestimate that relationship because Ben Morton, a former state director WA, Morrison, a former state director in New South Wales, the two of them know politics. Yeah, and, and they I, know the organisational side, they, they know, know the structure. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they he had know that how to, to run bounce campaigns. Off. They know how to run that's campaigns. That's the job. Exactly. And I think it did make a difference. I do. Absolutely. Yes, you're listening to Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny and my guests today, uh, as always, Dr. Maria Tafliger and Kieran Gilbert from Sky News. Uh, you can contact this podcast uh, at any time and we're always eager for you to do so. So you can uh, give us feedback and uh, perhaps put some questions to us, make some comments. You can get to us via Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, the APPS Policy Forum. You can also uh, go to the Facebook group Policy Forum Pod and our email is podcast at policyforum.net. Uh, and one of those questions has come in from Anna Greta Hunter. Uh, she asks, if it is a she, I'm not sure if it's a she or a he actually, um, I believe that's a she, uh, did the sale of Fairfax play a role in this election campaign? That's an interesting one. I, I hadn't really thought of it. I mean, this is obviously the transfer of, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, I guess, acquisition of the Fairfax mastheads by Channel 9. Really, I guess that goes to uh, was there any change in the tone of Fairfax newspapers through the campaign? And I, I don't think so. I don't think there was. And, no. and in fact, I noticed the Herald and the Age both 
unlike most of the other mastheads around the country, actually editorialised in favour of a change of government. They so, did, yeah. And I think that the AFR, while it edit, editorialised in favour of the coalition, was very As a straight. business paper would. You know, yeah, really. as a business paper would. But, I mean, the reporters in that paper are as straight in terms of their political coverage as you get. So, you know, I, I don't think that had a major bias. Yeah, I don't. I don't think the tone of that those papers have has changed because all the um, reporters remain the same. Um, and as someone who previously worked as a researcher for that organisation, I, I can't. I can't say I've noticed a distinct shift. Since, yeah, well, since I'd, the sale. I'd, yeah, I'd say the same as someone who was a national affairs editor up until quite recently at, at Fairfax. I, I, you know, I certainly uh, very critically aware of uh, of uh, the. How the, those newspapers uh, present themselves, and uh, I've obviously watched it with uh, equal uh, application since leaving, and I haven't detected any such uh, sort of political shift. In fact, I think uh, the contrast between the papers has grown, uh, but I don't think it's because of a shift on the Fairfax side. I think uh, many of the uh, News Corp mastheads uh, were pretty unsubtle through this election campaign, particularly the Australian. Um, and, you know, there's the notable story of, uh, you know, it, the Telegraph story about Bill Shorten's mother, which we saw. But, um, you know, the, the Australian pretty much used its front page every day to prosecute an argument that the government should be retained. And, uh, of course, they're pretty happy today uh, lauding the Messiah from the Shire. When you look at the telly coverage, I, um, it, it, ironically, I think that was the moment that Shorten was most authentic yes. was his response. It was actually probably his best moment of the campaign was the response to that story. But the issue when you look at the, the coverage towards the end of the campaign, it was this is why I think myself and a lot of others thought that um, Shorten would fall over the line because you look at the coverage in the last 24 hours, it was all about Bob Hawke. Even mm. the telly had eight pages mm. paying tribute to the great labor line, you know, the wonderful legacy of labor. And, and, and that's why I think when a lot of people just switch on and just tuning into the election, when you saw that coverage, you think, well, maybe that that should be enough to get shortened over the line. Well, you would, think that, wasn't. you would think that when you figured they were in front anyway, it just turns out that they weren't. It turns out that the polls weren't reflecting public opinion. But, you know, that was, I think, you know, one of the problems with that. I, it seemed to me that uh, all of that coverage about how effective the Hawke government was through the 80s, the Hawke and Keating governments were in terms of reform, economic management and so forth, all of that tended to skewer uh, a central Morrison argument that Labor can't manage the economy, can't manage money. And here was, here was a lot of uh, reflecting on, you know, a couple of the best governments in terms of reforms uh, that we've seen. Uh, yeah. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It turns out not to have counted. And perhaps in contrast to Bob Hawke, Bill Shorten, who has never been particularly popular with the Australian mm. people, came up short. Yeah, and if if someone was more like Hawkey, ironically, it could have been, you know, Morrison, the bloke who went to the Sharks last night, the guy that talks, you know, 
yeah, talks who, like the everyday man and yeah, like a suburban dad. Yeah, yeah. 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 You're with Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny. Uh, that's me, and we'll be back in just a moment. And at which point we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the particular policies that uh, uh, were so pivotal in this election, largely Labor policies, and also, I guess, what the challenges are now for Labor. So, back with that in a moment. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Right, well, let's just go to those uh, policies. Uh, obviously, the, the key ones are Labor's ambitions in negative, you know, to crimp negative gearing, capital gains tax, and, uh, and the dividend franking credits or franking credits, dividends, or however it is that you meant to say it. And in fact, therein lay part of the problem. It's a very difficult policy to explain. How much do you think, uh, Maria Teflaga, that, uh, that, that was that too ambitious a policy suite for a start? And uh, do you think that's what killed Labor's hopes? That's a great question. So, so as someone who wrote a PhD on oppositions and policymaking and the impact that's had on our politics, um, you know, I confess I was really excited that an opposition was prepared to try to talk about ideas and to practice the skill set of trying to convince people because that's something I think has really lacked in politics of late. Ministers don't have the skill sets to be persuasive and I think it's one of the reasons why politics is so awful. Having said that, it does seem that the the sheer plethora of policies on offer by Labor uh, was an issue and um, the government, which was an extremely effective uh, opposition, in effect, uh, essentially arguing that um, the opposition's policy platform was too risky, sort of overwhelmed Labor's um, campaign. And I think this really is evident in the franking credits issue, Mm -hmm. which is a really quite complex uh, form of uh, a policy formulation. Uh, most people have not really heard of the franking credit. Even if you have shares and you're doing your tax, uh, you might not actually know what this franking credit business is. Mm. It only affects 2% of the population, right? Um, but the government was able to turn that into a retirement tax. And if you don't understand the policy and if you're not really sure it affects you um, and you now hear it's a retirement tax and you're not mm. really that interested in politics and you're a retiree, well, you might think, oh, this is actually a problem for me and um, and it's and I can just – and the government hasn't been so bad mm. or I can just, you know, I'll just vote against Labor because they're going to spend a lot of money too and they're going to do this negative gearing thing and property prices are going to collapse and so on and so forth. Yeah. Kieran, and on top what, what of that – Yeah, well, absolutely. I, I agree with Maria on that. The, the, on top of that, you add a few other things, I think, and that is negative gearing, the policy which – allowed the government to prosecute and run those ads, the bill you can't afford, where people even that we spoke to just doing interviews on the side of the street were repeating that line. So it clearly cut through that message. And then I think they made themselves, well, they picked so many fights with so many different cohorts. Again, with the the mortgage brokers off the back of the Royal Commission, there was no no inclination to, to, to 
back them as opposed to just diving in and saying, no, we'll crack down on you as well. And and just be the willingness to to just have another fight with another cohort and another and another. And there wasn't to me the nuance that I would have expected from a centre-left party like the Labor Party with the tradition of the Hawke-Keating governments Mm -hmm. to still give that message of, you know, to the aspirational voter that we spoke about before. And one of the key examples of that was the fact that they kept the deficit levy in place yeah. and planned to do that for until they got, I think the surplus was going to be 1% of GDP. Correct. Yeah. So that was going to make the uh, the marginal tax rate effectively 49 49 cents. Per, the, exactly. The I mean, and, 49 and that, cents, which is not competitive on a global no, setting. And, and we also, know even Paul Keating has quite clearly said that is just too high in, in the past. So, you know, it, it allowed the government to uh, simply, you know, really, it really played into that government line that Labor is all about higher taxes and, and you know, that, well, give, that as you were. said, that give it go to get a go argument. Um, here they are taking half of the money you earn uh, over yeah, a certain when, amount. When, there was a, there's an element of truth to it because every tax they could take, they kept for as long, you know, and mm. were going to for, you know, for the foreseeable future. So I think there was a vulnerability they didn't have to create on that to say, okay, as soon as we can reduce that, we'll reduce that because as Bill Shorten has argued many times, as Chris Bolton's written in his book, you need to be competitive. But also it's about that view that while I'm paying, you know, earning 150000 today, I want to earn 300000 in, mm. you know, the next year or whatever. Mm. So- you need to keep that message because politics is, of course, about convincing people. Yeah, that's right. And, and campaigns are meant to convince people as well. Let yeah. me ask you both this. The fact that – because you raise a very interesting point about what they could have done as, as distinct from what they did do. Was there an element of hubris here? I mean, it's a bizarre thing to be talking about hubris in an opposition. And hubris is normally, you know, an ex- experienced by someone who's just won something and is, you know, getting carried away with themselves. But Perhaps were Labor so convinced they were going to win that they took risks that sober judgment would suggest they should? Well, take? maybe you describe it as hubris. I think he Shorten was so convinced that he was he had the right template that he convinced himself and he said so many times that the times suit us. Mm. He said that a lot. The times suit me, you know, Uh, but they didn't because he put all his eggs in the basket of trying to help those on the lowest and middle, you know, the lowest part of the income range, but not recognizing that as you nudge, you know, most of those people want to be doing better uh, as well. So I just think that they lost that message of opportunity, which they could have incorporated into their fairness agenda. I think they became a bit um, complacent in a way. like, uh, And it sort of shows in what Tanya Plibersek after, afterwards said. She sort of said, well, we wanted – we didn't want to get down in the mud and we wanted to sort of, you know, have the moral high ground and, and, and campaign on our agenda. But what they sort of failed to do was to constantly remind voters during this campaign what a troubled government – this has been exactly. You know, it's a it's a government that uh, not only has changed its leader several times, but um, has lost control of the parliament. Was so afraid of uh, coming back to parliament that they only sat for a handful of days this year, so they haven't been really doing their jobs. Mm. Uh, and then when they when parliament did come back, they actually lost control of their own agenda and had legislation forced upon them. And not to mention the fact that all the underlying structural problems within this government um, before the Morrison win remained, right? Yeah. It, they cannot agree on climate change. They cannot agree on other policy directions. They've got no energy policy at all. They couldn't even agree on that. And there's a litany of sort of, you know, like favours for mates stories. And yeah. 
perhaps what Labor really needed to do, the negative portion of their campaign was not necessarily to run a character assassination upon Scott Morrison or, uh, you know, to make up a Medicare scare or so on and so forth, but just to remind voters that this government has not done a good job of serving citizens. It's done a very good job of concerning itself with its own internal wrangle. It shouldn't have been close, it, to be honest, because everything you've said is right. It should not have been close. And Labor's advertising wasn't as good. The government was they much did, more They effective. did run a fair few pictures of Peter Dutton through Victoria. They didn't get a single thing in Victoria that wasn't already penciled into their no, column no. after the election. They didn't get a single seat that wasn't already penciled in think, from the redistribution. I don't think their, their ads and the, certainly the unions, it, it was nowhere near as potent as the bill you can't afford. That, that yeah. was the best ad of the campaign and quite clearly, you know, it, it was enough to contribute to this victory. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's easy to be uh, sort of wise in hindsight, I guess. But Very. It, <laughs> yeah, I find it much easier than it actually predicting. <laughs> I mean, I, as I say, I'll say it again, I predicted that Labor would win this election because of all of the fundamentals, Maria, that you just talked about. And yeah. one of the other ones you didn't even mention was, uh, you know, their, their, their women problem, the fact that prominent women were walking away in droves, you know. They, and standing as independents. Yeah. Um, and six minutes to quit. From Tony yeah, Abbott. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, or just simply giving up, you know, in despair because because of uh, the direction of things and, of course, their you know, climate change. We, we all thought and the polls did seem to suggest that climate change was a decisive issue in itself in the election, but uh, maybe it was overstated, maybe because uh, you know we were talking about problems with polling before, maybe because it overemphasised uh, the extent of polling. Maybe they were talking on mobile phones to more young no, people. I think, I think climate change was still significant. And, and if you look at the results, it's, changer. well, I think it was, if you look at Warringah, Abbott lost it on a single issue and that was climate change. Indy as well, an independent I don't, I one don't look, I, on I, the basis of climate change yeah, in both I, those I, I don't, I agree with you that Zali Stegall campaigned very effectively and she certainly made climate change a big issue because it was, it was in a sense, uh, the big weakness of Tony Abbott. It was like a signature failing of Tony Abbott, but it was really a cipher for his conservatism. Sure. You know, on a lot of things, you know, that as we've noted before was the, uh, had the second highest yes vote of any liberal seat in New South Wales in the same sex marriage survey. And Tony Abbott, the local member, happened to be the nation's most prominent no campaigner. So I think there was a shift going on there that she was capitalizing on. Of course, she couldn't just, you know, prosecute a campaign on the basis mm. of same sex marriage. That issue was already decided. But Climate change obviously is one that was, uh, you know, a big, uh, another big example. But there were swings so, against, it, but it wasn't just there. There were swings against um, Frydenberg, um, other seats in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. It still, I think, changed votes, and I think they would be, re be remiss. Seats. Be, because what happened was people when they, the, I, I think it's a, still a potent issue, hundred percent. But what I think in terms of maybe it did um, contribute to Warringah or not or Indi, we can agree to disagree on that. But what I think has happened is that Labor made themselves such a weak weakness in terms of affecting people's own, you know, um, financial position that in, when they're in the ballot box and they think, oh, this is it, you know, I'll hold my nose here and tick the Liberals. But I, I think they would, it'd be very naive of them to think the climate is not still a big issue that they need to manage because Labor basically gifted them a lot of votes because of people who would be a lot worse off under Labor policies. Yeah, look, I think I, I accept all of that, uh, and I, I, you know, acknowledge that in seats like Indi, it was obviously uh, an explicit campaigning edge that uh, the, you know the, the, the winning candidate had. 
Um, but I guess what I'm saying is there weren't seats uh, that uh, you know Labor picked up on the strength of climate change. It did. It, it didn't end up being as decisive as we might have thought. So, I, well, I think because of that vulnerability on the hip pocket, I yeah. do. Well, because I, th- I mean, when people, I mean, obviously, when you're voting, it's not one dimensional. There's a whole heap of issues you've got to factor in. But I think there'd be a lot of people yeah. who voted for the Liberal Party who want. You know, and we spoke to Josh Frydenberg today about and asked him, "Do you recognise that you've got to still keep?" retreat this as a serious issue. He said, 100%, we mm. do. Yeah, well, that's right. There was a moment, uh, you know, very early in the campaign, you know, uh, before I think the Anzac Day Easter break, where uh, Bill Shorten was in Boothby in South Australia. He had a bit of an exchange with uh, Jonathan Lee from Channel 10, uh, the travelling media, about the costs to the economy of Labor's climate change policies, its ambitious emissions reductions uh, schedule and so forth. And it, I wrote about this at the time because it's, it really struck me that this was the first sort of testy exchange of the campaign and climate change was meant to be a net positive for Labor and yet at that moment it seemed to me it became a negative. At least it, an aspect of it became a negative. It, it, it was allowed to feed into the uh, that, that broader question about Labor and money and Shorten w- was very much on the back foot trying to handle it. Now, I think he sort of honed his lines in the next few days and started trying to argue that the costs of inaction were greater than the costs of action. But the government, and Sh- and Morrison is just so good at this, the government was able to just sort of surgically peril that back and just say, here he is, he's proposing something, he doesn't know how much it costs or he's not levelling leveling with you, the voter, about how much it costs and it, and it sort of turned what should have been a negative for the Labor Party, at least neutralised it and perhaps in some eyes may have turned it into a negative. Well, the reality is is that, you know, people always say the number one issues are like health and education and, and maybe the environment is now moving into that space. But when we um, look at things like the AES um, and actually look for what is statistically significant- That's the in, Australian election study. That's the yeah. Australian election study done by the ANU. Um, um, what we actually find is that the economy really does drive people's votes. And and uh, to sort of like, I, I agree with both of you. I mean, I think in a nutshell, Labor won over the, the poor, which of course they did, and they won over the wealthy uh, sort of, uh, you know, moral middle class who decided that, yeah, you know, we probably could could share out some of our wealth a bit more and do something about climate change, but they did not reassure the middle that they would do something about climate change but not trash the economy. And yeah. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Now, we've got one uh, final thing that I think we need to cover here, and that is the challenge facing the Labor Party now. Uh, we've Obviously, we've discussed uh, the you know, the, the boldness of their program and how obviously it didn't resonate with enough voters to get them over the line. Now... Bill Shorten's gone. He's announced he's stepping down. They have to find a new leader, and I guess they have to find uh, they have to reconfigure and put themselves back into a competitive space. What do you think they should do, Kieran? Well, they've got to listen to Joel Fitzgibbon, I think, to a large extent, and think about their blue collar base because they've just hemorrhaged votes mm. in Queensland, in Fitzgibbon seat at the Hunter, but right across the board. Those northern Queensland seats, there are twelve percent swings against yeah, Labor, which is going to make blue it, collar, you know, uh, it's going to make it really voters. hard winning the, those seats back because the margins are now 10, 11, 12 mm. percent mm. in Capricornia, which yeah. is you know thirty seven votes at the last election. Yeah. But there are other seats like Macquarie in the Blue Mountains, Lily in in Brisbane, suburban Brisbane. They, they lost the message. To as Maria said, the working and middle class that are, you know, f- 
it's a tortured point that I've made, you know, repeatedly, but I think it's important is that aspirational voter. They, yeah. They've got to go back to the blue collar base, say that we believe, um, you know, we're going to back you in, in your jobs. I think, you know, Shorten talks about the timing suiting him. It didn't suit him with Adani and it didn't suit him with the Palaszczuk government and their position. Mm. It, 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 it butchered their vote up there. Did that, um, did that convoy of people do any good? So I mean, counterproductive. Me, yeah, I thought it was counterproductive. Even at the time, I thought, you know, that's just going to sort of rubbing people's noses in it. You know, we don't care what Coming from your the South. Jobs. Yeah. It's like Queenslanders will give you the finger, you know. Mm. Sorry. that, that so such so a big going goal. that kind of strategy. It is. But I think what they need to do, uh, in short, to, to answer your question, they need to um, – basically draw a line under the, some of those policies and say, okay, we've taken heed, we'll move on. And don't um, – they, they need also a new generation of leadership, I think. If I had to you know, pick, which I don't because I'm not a Labor member and I don't get a say in the caucus, but I think their best choice would be Jim Chalmers, who is a uh, also a Queensland MP. Mm. He's in his late 30s. He's sharp. He's next generation. And uh, I think he's pragmatic and also a Queenslander, which doesn't And you hurt. wouldn't go to Tanya Plibersek? I think uh, in my personal view is Jim Chalmers is their best option. With Tanya as deputy perhaps? Maybe. But I, I think she was the deputy to Shorten. They've repudiated Shorten. Definitely not Bowen. It can't be Bowen. I mean, he was the architect of the whole economic plan. And so Albanese's, I think that would be diabolical. Anthony, Anthony Albanese is too much of the same. I mean, he's obviously different from Shorten, but he's uh, He's the a older communicator. Again. He's popular. They, they probably will go with Albanese. I just think if you're looking at pure um, – you know, prospects, I think Chalmers is the one. So, what do you think, Mary? I, I, I think I would I'd be a bit reluctant for Jim Chalmers to put his hand up too soon. I think the Labor Party is in a really vulnerable position right now. And part of it really depends on how the government travels. Because, you know, Morrison now has an opportunity to assert his dominance over the Liberal Party. And if they're lucky and the economic conditions remain relatively benign, he will cement his position and notionally, because he's had this win and can assert his dominance over this party, just get them to a settlement on something like climate change so they can move on and talk about taxes and all the things that the Liberals talk about. And so if 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 that happens and you've got a leader like Jim Chalmers who's still very young and still quite inexperienced, you might burn him up and uh, and ruin him. And, um, and mm. I, th- I think that's something that Labor really does need to consider. I mean, I think he's only been in Parliament since – 2013, I think. So that's yeah. that's not it, a lot of experience, and it's a really hard job. It is an interesting point too, um, because there's a sense, be, you know, we, we, we'll end here, but there's a sense that uh, the although this is the third term of a Liberal government, that it feels like a first term in a way for the Morrison government, which it, which it will be really a first proper term, and. The danger, therefore, is that it actually does, you know, conform to that trend that we don't really have one-term governments in Australia. Uh, Labor needs to make sure this isn't like the 1998 result where it was close to winning. I mean, it's already done that really with the 2016 result. You know, it came close to winning in 2016 and then has failed at the one it's meant to win following that. Um, but Labor really needs to make sure that it finds a way now to not go any further backwards and indeed to make those gains. And, and as you say, Kieran, it'll be pretty hard in some of those seats where they haven't just lost, they've lost to a fairly significant uh, repudiation from uh, you know what would what you would imagine the Labor Heartland voters, and even in Western Sydney, seats like Lindsay and Reid that they had uh, you know, designs on, they've just gone backwards in. Yeah, and I, I think the most likely scenario is that they go with Albanese, um, possibly Tanya Plibersek, but short, but that Jim Chalmers, who I mentioned, will be deputy 
it's probably the most likely scenario for the reasons Maria suggested. Um, they won't. I, I personally think um, when you're talking about a generational shift, it, uh, that that appeals to me in a political sense, but I think they will probably be more cautious and go with one of the other two with Chalmers as the deputy moving forward. But you're right, they have to, they have to regroup. They have to try and be a bit more... Um, I guess, sh sharper in terms of their political strategy than they were this time where complacency did set in. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, and my guests today have been Kieran Gilbert from Sky News and my regular partner here in the podcast, Dr. Maria, Maria Tafliger. Every time I go to say your name, Maria, I manage to get it wrong. It's a cursed name. It's, it's a cursed fault. name. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. And next week, Thanks, I guess, Mark. we'll look at the uh, – uh, this perhaps taking a slightly more longer-term historical uh, sort of context, what this election meant and uh, what it means for the Labor Party. It's uh, obviously going to be the uh, dominant issue over the next uh, few months indeed and what the government is going to do with its agenda, which, strangely enough, having just won an election, doesn't seem to be all that rich or all that challenging. So thanks very much and uh, we'll talk to you next week. 